Good morning again, everyone. How beautiful it is to start the day with baptisms on the Lord's Day. What a beautiful grace that is. So, <clears throat> And if you would, turn to Ephesians. I know I've been gone a couple weeks. Um, thank you so much to Wes and Devin um, for bringing the word to us. Um, but we are still in Ephesians. We're going to finish up chapter 4 today. And... This message um, has challenged me in many different ways this week, which is always good. That's what I pray that the, the, the Lord's Word does for me each week. Um, and we're going to be in verses 25 through 32. So I know everyone just got seated, but if you would, in honor of the reading of the one who gave us this word, please stand for just a moment while we read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. It reads, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not, give grie do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come together this morning on the Lord's Day to worship in your house. We thank you for the grace of celebrating those whom you have saved uh, by their obedience and baptism. We Thank you for the opportunity as a body to get to look at the text we have today that gives us those practical applications, the, the points that we are to live out as followers of you. I pray that it will impact each one of our hearts uh, as I know it has impacted mine this week. I pray that in me you will remove any distractions, um, any hindrances, any pride. I am fully dependent on you, Lord, and I pray that you will use your spirit through me uh, to preach this text as you intended. We glorify you and thank you in your holy name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. All right, so as I mentioned, um, we are going to be finishing up chapter 4. And in this passage, Paul is going to give us some contrast. That's the title of the message today is Contrasts. And this is building on what Paul gave us last week when Devin brought the word. So in the first verse that we're going to consider today, in verse 25, it says, Therefore... And Devin last week took a passage that um, the, the, the main point that Paul was trying to make was putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And we as humans really need more detail than that, don't we? Our minds justify ourselves, and well, that could mean any, any, just any number of things. What, what does old man and new man mean? And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, God knowing the fickleness of human hearts, gave us these examples of the contrast, the, the old man and the new man. And so this is a very real, plain, practical application of old man versus the new man. And really, this is a, a beautiful way to look at how the imperatives of Scripture, the commands, the things that we are to go to do, is built on the theology that we profess. Chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians, as I've mentioned before, absolutely tells us beautiful pictures of Christ, beautiful pictures of God saving humanity and building his church and starting out the foundation of everything he's building for his church on Christ. And now he comes and says, because you are built on Christ, lay off the old man, put on the new man, and here's the practical application of what that looks like. So that's what we're going to dig into today, because truly, we cannot, as humans, leave it to our own imaginations of what God tells us to do. We need to have the instructions. The Spirit uses those instructions to change our desires as we seek to honor God over honoring our own desires. So that's, that's the goal today, is to make sure that we all see these contrasts here that Paul gives us, that we can leave here understanding what the new man looks like in our own lives. 
So number one, there's going to be six contrasts. Number one, truth over lies. Truth over lies. So we're going to start in verse 25. It says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, this idea of laying aside falsehood, notice that it's not just lies. This idea of falsehood is any sort of deception, any sort of, of omission of information, hoping that someone doesn't find something out. How many of us are guilty of that? So I don't want you to get in the idea, yes, for my point, it's easier to say lies, but truth over lies, it's actually really falsehood. The idea of any sort of falsity or deception or omission Anything apart from the truth. Now, Paul is quoting here from Zechariah, Zechariah 8, verse 16. You can look that up. But Zechariah 8, verse 16 is in context. It reads, the verse itself reads, These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth, judgment, excuse me, judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. And in context, this verse is God declaring himself that he is establishing the new Jerusalem as a city of truth because he dwells there. So because God dwells there, it is a city of truth. Now, when we think about why Paul would use something from that context, because there are other places in the Old Testament where God says, tell the truth, right? The Ten Commandments is the first that pops to my mind, right? God, this is not the first time that God has said that. I think that Paul, one of the inspiration of the Spirit, very clearly says, this verse in context, because where does God dwell on earth today? In his church. In his church. The, the book of Ephesians is written to the church as a whole, is written for the church to know and understand what the church should be, what it's foundationally built upon, how it should act, how it should um, interrelate with one another. And so Paul takes this verse, quotes it, and says, you are members one of another. We are members one of another. And this isn't the only time that Paul tells us to be truthful. Ephesians 4.15, earlier in this chapter, he says, speaking truth in love. Colossians 3.9. Colossians 3.9 says, do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with its evil practices. Remember that Colossians, Paul wrote basically at the same time as he wrote Ephesians. He just sent them with two different messengers. So he's got this idea that the church is one of truth. Now, why is that? Well, he tells us because we are members of one another. Throughout this book, Paul has used analogies of buildings and bodies, right, to, to describe the church, the body. I don't know if anyone's in the medical profession or maybe enjoy medical-type shows and dramas and those kinds of things, but whenever you look at those types of shows, if a member of the body is telling the brain something incorrect, can the problem be diagnosed? In other words, can a symptom be properly diagnosed if the symptom is wrong? If there's, if there, think of that. If, if the body was lying to itself, how would it be able to properly diagnose an issue? Right? If my toe gets stubbed, but my finger starts pulsating, instead of my toe, there's a malfunction, right? And I feel pain here, but my toe is what's bleeding everywhere. Am I going to be able to fix the issue? No. Members of a body cannot properly function together in a cloud of falsities, in a cloud of deceptions. There's a reason Paul ties this back to us being members is because we cannot operate as the body of Christ without truth being spoken, truth being practiced. Now, with that being said, I want to make sure and say that there is two sides to this coin. You cannot speak truth in the body of Christ without love. Truth without love becomes injurious very, very quickly. Truth without the love of Christ backing the motivation of why you're sharing truth becomes an attack for personal gain very, very quickly. So this idea of saying the truth should absolutely happen. Absolutely happen. But how you deliver that truth, how you deliver 
that um, right information, the challenge that you would maybe give to your brother or sister in Christ who's not living according to Scripture, which we are called to do, how you deliver that truth is wildly impactful. And you must do it from a place of love. You have to do it as Christ told the truth to those whom he ministered to. Did Christ not give unadulterated truth? Yes, he's Christ. He did not lie. But people were drawn to him because he gave the truth in love. And you can think of many examples throughout the Gospels of Christ living that out, being our example. And truly, I think Paul starts here because the rest of them, anger and some of the things we're going to talk about contrasted today, the old man, the new man, I think a lot of that starts with the truth in the body of Christ. Because being false, especially in our day and age, lying, deceiving, omitting, all the things that are encapsulated in this idea of falsehood is a crazy high and hard temptation to sidestep in our world today. Because think about it, you don't want to have to tell the truth to someone, they may not like you. You don't want to have to tell the truth to someone because it may make you look bad. You don't want to have to tell the truth because it may cost you something. I made a mistake and this is what it's going to cost. And lying seems to come so naturally. I think one of the first things our children, at least in my experience, learn to do is lie. It's one of the first things that kids, wasn't me. I literally watched you eat the cookie, dude. No, no, it wasn't me. There's chocolate around their face, right? Falsities are the first, one of the first things that shows up in the lives of our children, in our lives, and it is one of the hardest things to break. And Paul sets this up because I think that the majority of issues in the body of Christ stem from deceit of some kind, not just simply not being truthful. And there can be other things, but if you trace it back, someone somewhere was probably false. There was falsities somewhere, if you look at church divisions. Because other things build on that. When you lie, then someone's angry when it's found out. And then bitterness seeps in that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. And malice comes in because now you want to get the person back for lying. Right? And these things build upon this, this falsehood. So one of the primary things that we have to do is lay aside falsehoods. The old man is false. What is Satan called in Scripture? The father of lies. One of the primary ways that we no longer are identifying with the father of who we are as a dead man, as our old man, is by setting aside the falsehood, the lies of Satan. So we have to make sure that we are focusing on telling the truth. Now, how do we do that? How, was that? how do we practically apply this? And this is a very heavy application message, so bear with me on this. But I want, you to, I want us to really understand how to deal honestly with one another. So number one is we have to practice truthfulness at every opportunity. Practice truthfulness. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect at it, but practice truthfulness. Ways you do that is if you're talking to someone and you exaggerate a little bit and you catch yourself, just be honest about it. Oh, yeah, that probably exaggerated a little bit. I'm sorry. Right? Be honest. Be humble. Practice truthfulness. Number two, receive truth graciously. This is vitally important. When I said just a moment ago that the reason why we default to falsehood is because we're afraid of the reaction, if we reacted as believers... With grace, as Christ does, the reaction, the fear of the reaction is much less tempting to lie or to have falsities. Receive the truth with graciousness. If someone comes to you in good faith as a brother or sister in Christ, and they say, here, here's something that I see in your life that I think is not lining up for Scripture, receive that and respond, but don't react. I worked at T-Mobile for a lot of years, and many of you may not know that or or might know that, but one of the primary things that I learned in dealing with people in the management class that they would have me go to that is, has helped me in life. It truly has. Sometimes you can learn good things in really bad places, okay? But that is to respond and not react. Anybody else have management classes that train like that and just me? Okay, there's some more. Okay, so you guys know what I'm talking about. 
And there is a vitally, a vitally important difference between responding and reacting. Reacting is that passion, that immediate reaction. You, you, you jump to defensiveness. You jump to putting it back on them or, or making them take responsibility for something that should truly be your responsibility. And so instead of taking a moment and pausing and saying thank you, processing what has been said and then responding correctly. I'm not saying that every single time someone comes to tell you something, every aspect of it is true. As a pastor, you have to learn not everything someone says to you is necessarily accurate. But you still receive that and you filter it through scripture. You filter it through other men of God and say, hey, this is feedback that I've been given. Is this accurate? And then you respond according to scripture with grace, examining yourself. Is this something the spirit is using to grow me? And so you respond instead of react. So the two things to, to apply from this is practice truthfulness and respond with graciousness. Be the receiver. When you are receiving something, allow someone to teach and talk to you and be truthful with you. Okay, the second point, peace over anger. So there's a second contrast that Paul makes here. So he's made the first contrast, lying Excuse me, truthfulness over falsehood or truth over lies. The second one he says is anger instead of peace. So peace over anger is technically the second point. Peace over anger. So verse 26 and 27 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. There's some very important things to draw from here and I want to also help us correct maybe some things that we've had this verse taken out of context to mean and, and maybe some misapplications from a good heart. So this point may take us a little bit longer, but there's a lot here to prevent disunity in the body. So first of all, notice what it says is be angry. Anger is okay. Anger in and of itself is okay. God himself becomes angry. Or full of wrath. Same, same meaning. But notice what it says, and this is the really, really hard part. And yet do not sin. And yet do not sin. <laughs> now Paul is quoting here, and if you're in your Bible you might see uh, the, it's worded a little differently. That means he's quoting from an Old Testament passage. And the passage that he's quoting for is, or from excuse me, is Psalm chapter 4 and verse 4. So Paul is quoting Psalm chapter 4 and verse 4. And that verse reads, Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Tremble there in the Hebrew can also be translated as anger. So he's so angry that someone is trembling. Anybody ever trembled with anger before? Right? That's, for me, I think that's the peak of anger. I think it, when, it, when it causes you that physical that's the peak of being as angry as possible. And if you read Psalm 4 in its entirety, the psalmist is writing here with the theme of being safe in Yahweh. And so he comes to the point where the psalmist is saying, even in your anger, when you are so angry that you're trembling, rest in God. Rest in your bed. Be calm. And so that got my wheels thinking, well, well what, is that, what does that mean? Does that mean that anger is the idea of retribution or, or retaliation or getting back at someone. And so then I started digging in, and, and I'm only going to read one of these, but uh, Romans chapter 12, 17 through 19, if you'll turn there for me. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 19. Because with Paul pulling this out of the psalm that he does when it's called, talking about being resting and safe in Yahweh, resting in your bed, pondering in your heart about God, not sinning in your anger. And then you read what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 19. It says, Never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the same idea that the psalmist is saying in poetry, in Psalm chapter 4, Paul is saying much more concisely. 
with a less poetic idea. But that vengeance is God. Let him be angry with those whom has sinned against you. And that is quite the challenge. That is quite the challenge. Because our immediate reaction is, they got me, they're going to get God. Is that not how we're taught in the world today? Get even? Revenge is a dish best served cold for you Star Trek fans? Okay? And so when you think about this idea of God should be the one that we're trusting in, the sovereign king of the universe who is 100% just, perfectly good in all of his interactions and absolutely sovereign, should we not trust his will? And so that leads me to the practical idea of, okay, so I can be angry, but not sin. Be angry, but not sin. Is that even possible? Is that even possible? Because think, think about you getting angry over the last week. How many times have you getting angry over the last week was because of the kingdom of God? Anyone want to shout out a number? You have one over there. I'm not saying that every occurrence, or there hasn't been some occurrences of, of being angry because of sin, right? But when we think about anger, the righteous anger should make us angry about something outside of ourselves. Think about that. Righteous anger is anger outside of ourselves. Because the first place that our sinful anger starts is taking offense at something. Because in our little world, we are a top dog, right? We are the most important. We are the ones, how dare you not shake my hand correctly? I'm offended. Right? Or think of reacting instead of responding. That person just came and showed me that I clearly sinned according to Scripture. That angers me. Because it, it offends me. Instead of getting angry at the fact that you broke the law of God, you are now angry that that person dared to bring it to your attention. Do you see the difference? So now we're talking about righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Knowing and understanding that is vitally important to the functionality of a local body. Because you can indeed be angry and not sin, but it doesn't happen very often. Think about the last month. How many times have you been angry about the things of God? So take, take how many times you've been angry total versus how many times was about the kingdom of God or righteous anger. When my kids are involved, this number drops. I'm in just full transparency. <clears throat> I just want you to think about that. I'm just gonna, you don't have to raise up any numbers, but I, I really want you to think through when I am angry... How am I handling that? Is it righteous anger? What is the core reason for my anger? And let's use kids as an example. Because the, the original language here is provocation. The verse is saying not to sin while angry, which is provocation. Don't let yourself be provoked to anger. Don't lose your temper is basically what it's saying. So to put it in common terms, common idea, don't snap off. Don't lose your temper. So let's think about this with our kids. The last time you lost your temper with your child or your spouse, if you don't have kids, or your boss, whatever the case may be, are you angry because they broke the law of God or because they inconvenienced you? Think about your kids for just a second. Are you truly angry that that milk got spilled because they broke the law of God and didn't honor their father and mother? Are you angry because you have to clean it up? Both are anger. One is righteous, one is not. Do you see the difference? And just believe me, it's hard. Oh, I'm not saying this because it's easy. And it's something I struggle with regularly. But when we use that example of our children, are you getting angry with your fellow member of the body over the kingdom of God or because they inconvenienced you? I do want to take just a moment here and say that sometimes, sometimes, righteous anger is misused and abused. 
The term righteous anger is thrown around to justify a plethora of angry actions or attitudes or activities or reactions that simply and truthfully are not righteous anger. Okay? So think through yourself, what are some times that I have told myself I am righteously angry and misuse that idea? Don't, 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 let, that, don't let that slip through because it happens very, very quickly. Like I said earlier, humans have an innate ability to justify themselves. Your righteous anger is only righteous. Anger is only righteous when it falls perfectly in line with God's word. That's it. That's the only time it's righteous anger. Another common misconception from this verse, and I I've, have been in that mindset before, do not let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. This does not mean to stay up all night, that you're required per scripture to stay up and not go to bed, husbands and wives especially. This is, this is what it applies. This does not mean to stay up all night and get to the bottom of this. Because then you're tired and you're hungry and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you have to get up in two hours and go to work. That is not a time to settle a dispute. Okay? This is allegorical. This is not literal. What this is saying is you don't have to go to bed angry. Just because the dispute is not settled doesn't mean you don't have to go to bed or you have to go to bed angry. Your dispute can be settled the next day. There's no problem with that. But you can choose not to be angry. Okay, we had a dispute. Let's figure it out tomorrow. That's very difficult, very difficult for controlling people like me. No, no, I'm going to chase you around until we figure this out. Come here, come here. You have to talk to me. My wife is laughing right now. I've gotten a lot better. But those are two common misconceptions of this verse uh, before we apply it. So I want to make sure that we are understanding this verse correctly and in context and not taking it out of place. Now notice what Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your angry anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Why would God, why would God through Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, tell us that anger, inappropriate anger, gives the devil an opportunity in church? It's pretty self-explanatory at this point, I think, if you've been in the church longer than five minutes. It really is. If you've been in a relationship with another human being longer than five minutes, you can understand how losing, the, losing your temper and unrighteous anger manifests itself in wild amounts of, of, of division and disunity. And so we as a church body, what does the devil want to, to do? Let's think about that. What does the devil want to do to the body of Christ? Divide. Divide. That is his, he wants to make us completely ineffective. He knows he can't touch our eternal souls. Christ has us in his hands and nothing can take us from his hand. But what does he want to do? Make us completely ineffective. And he will do that at every opportunity. And one of the primary ways that he does that is through anger when we react instead of respond. So it's vitally important that we understand this as a body of Christ, that we cannot react. We cannot let our pride get in there because there is an extremely close connection to anger and pain. To anger and pain. Whether that be a physical pain, an emotional pain, an annoyance, right? How many times? I've told you 17 times, don't pour the milk yourself. You're four years old and you can't handle a gallon of milk by yourself. And suddenly there's milk all over the floor. Anybody ever experienced that? Or apple juice? I think apple juice was our big one. I can pour the juice myself, mom. And right? And I keep using kids because we all have so many kids in here, but understand how you respond to that is because you are angered at the pain of having to clean it up, because that's a pain. Because now I have 17 other things that I have to do with all your brothers and sisters 
and now I have to stop and clean up a gallon of apple juice all over the floor, and it's going to take forever because it's sticky, and I'm going to have to clean it seven times throughout the day because every time it dries, it's going to be sticky again. Who, all the moms in here relate? Anyone? Yes? Okay. But we're mad because it's a pain to us. My expectations were not met. My expectation was my child was going to do what I asked them to do. My expectation was not met. Therefore, I'm angered because it's a pain. Do you see how quickly that can unravel? So an application here, I want to read because I, I could not write this. I wanted to, to really communicate this very well. It's in your bulletin or your, your sermon notes. There's a quote by John Calvin. It's lengthy, so I put it in there so you can read it and digest it later. But follow along with me if you have it, but I would like to read it to you. This is John Calvin. In my opinion, Paul merely alludes to the passage with the following view. There are three faults by which we offend God in being angry. The first is when our anger arises from slight causes, and often from no cause whatever, or at least from private injuries or offenses. The second is when we go beyond the proper bounds and are hurried into intemperate excesses. So in other words, lose your temper. The third is when our anger, which ought to have been directed against ourselves or against sins, is turned against our brethren. Most appropriately, therefore, did Paul, when he wished to describe the proper limitation of anger, employ the well-known passage, Be ye angry and sin not. We comply with this injunction if the objects of our anger are sought not in others, but in ourselves. If we pour out our indignation against our own faults. With respect to others, we ought to be angry not at their persons, but at their faults. Nor, are, nor ought we to be excited to anger by private offenses, but by zeal for the glory of the Lord. Lastly, our anger, after a reasonable time, ought to be allowed to subside without mixing itself with the violence of carnal passions. That's a mouthful, but he, he words that so well. These are the kinds of things that are inappropriate anger. These are the kind of things that are appropriate anger. And so I'd encourage you, if you didn't pick up a bulletin, you want to have that quota, I had it available for you. So how does this apply? So obviously we've talked about several ways it applies. But I want you to continue to ask yourself, almost daily, when I got angry today, was it at the things, uh, was it for God's kingdom or was it for personal pain or personal inconvenience? Because we are to be angry. We are simply to do it without sinning. And as we establish righteous anger are those things that we are angry for the cause of the kingdom, the things that have offended God. And there's no better place to look for offenses against the kingdom of God than within. Be angry with your own sins. Be on guard for that anger within the body. And the second way of, 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 of this happening is stop taking everything so personally. Truly, stop taking everything so personally. It's not about you. Be gracious in your responses. It is not about you. I can tell you, by having personal relationships with nearly every person in this room, I have never seen a malicious attack from any person on someone else. They just may be having a, a bad day. I'm not saying that we're not past that. We can sin. All I'm saying is, remember, they're very likely not attacking you personally. When they didn't shake your hand. They probably just didn't see you when they pulled out in front of you by mistake. Right? Think through, stop taking things so personally. Be gracious. Trust the good intentions of your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are not most likely, most likely, in a healthy body, not out to get you. They're just not. Let things go. Okay, I told you that would be a longer point. Number three, Work over theft. So the next contrast that Paul gives us is work over theft. This one's pretty self-explanatory, but let's talk through it because there's an important piece here I don't want us to miss. Verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so they will have something to share with one who has need. Do not steal. 
That one is pretty self Don't take something that doesn't belong to you. Okay? So the negative is there. Do not steal. But what about the positive? Because Paul is contrasting a negative versus a positive. So we are to work with our own hands in laboring what is good. So I'm going to give you a few different passages to help explain this and think through this a little bit more clearly. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, the very person that wrote this letter in talking to the Ephesians before he left their side for the last time, he says this, In everything I showed you that by laboring in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul set this example. In Galatians 6.10, he also told the Galatians, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Especially to those who are believers. This verse is explicitly telling us that we are to work hard, not for the most expensive vehicle, not for the biggest house, not for the fancy vacations, we are to work hard to provide for those who are in need. That's specifically what it's saying. Don't steal, work hard to provide for your family, and in your excess, help those who are in need. Especially those who are members of the faith. <clears throat> Especially those who are members of the faith. And Paul gives us other examples in 1 Thessalonians 4. 9 through 12. Now concerning love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to excel still more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded, to, commanded you so that you will walk properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. When was the last time you heard our culture tell you to live a quiet life where you work with your hands, you follow God, and you take care of those around you? This is a lost idea in the American society today. It's a lost idea. The fact that I can comfortably, according to the command of God, live quietly with my family, work hard, and worship Him. Do you realize that's the command of God to the men of Second Thessalonians, or first, excuse me, First Thessalonians? That was a command of the church: live quietly, work with your hands, worship God, love the brethren. That is wildly countercultural. That's what Scripture says. That's what we are to do as believers. And Paul knows that this is hard to do because in 2 Thessalonians, he echoes the same idea but says, don't lose heart in doing good. I understand this is not easy. But the idea that we are to work with our hands and not mooch off the government, that is absolutely scriptural. Live quiet lives, support your family, love God, worship God, love the brethren. Because we need to be able to help support one another when those times, those hard times come. I want you to think through this practically. So from an application point, number one, we are to be a giving body. That's clear. We are to help one another. Give generously as you have excess and glory to God. Number two, a point of application that we can, that's a natural good consequence is, don't be afraid to let the body know when you have a need. We are here for one another. We are here to support one another. That is, that is literally our directive in Scripture, is to help support one another. Doesn't it make perfect sense that God said, I will provide all your needs, and then put you in a body that provides your needs, and he says, provide each other's needs. <laughs> God is, is not only the author of the outcome, but the means to which he brings us to that outcome. If God says, I will provide your needs, it makes perfect sense. He's going to put you someplace to provide your needs. 
Okay? So we as a body have to be willing to do that. But that's not possible if we're not working hard at the glory of God with our hands in good activities. And the good activities piece are those things that would honor God. I, you know, there's, there's professions in this world that I would say probably do not honor God. And that's not what I'm talking about. Right. All right. The next contrast. And this one challenged me to my core. Building up over tearing down. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So the word unwholesome here, in the original language, has some very impactful backing to what it actually means. It's the word sapros, and it means putrid, rancid, rotten, decaying. So this idea of unwholesome is literally garbage language. Garbage language. It's rotten, decaying. But when you couple that with the idea of chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, just a few verses, we'll be there next week. It says, but sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Foolish talk and coarse jesting. Our speech should be one that is building up the body of Christ, the other believers in Christ, by means of grace. Vulgar, rotten language, it's, it's very clearly here not to be used. Coarse jesting, that's, that hits home with me. I like to make jokes, and making jokes and being sarcastic, those kinds of things is wildly different than some jokes that I've made in my past. And I'm wildly embarrassed to say some of the jokes that I've made in my past, and I thank God for helping me with that. But this is convicting. Because avoiding that language is clearly what we're supposed to do, but do you see what it says? Say things that build people up. Say things that build people up. That is difficult for me to do. And I don't, I don't mean that in, in, in kind of weird way, it's just, I was raised, men don't do that. We don't show emotion. The words, I'm proud of you, non-existent. That is hard to do. But it's a command that we are commanded to do. And I'm going to talk through some, some practical applications of this because there really is not a whole lot to build outside of avoid rotten, stinking, decaying language and build up one another in grace. There's not a lot that I can add to that outside of just simply practically applying it and giving some examples so we can think through it. The illustration that I want to use for this, I hope hits home with everyone, and I know I'm using kids in general a lot today, but again, it's impactful for where we are as a body. Okay, we have a lot of kids in here. Parents, what happens with your children when they are encouraged versus discouraged by your wording? For the exact same action. They haven't listened again. Okay? They've done the exact thing you've told them not to do. Help me pick out the difference. See if you can pick out the difference. What is the matter with you? How many times have I told you not to do that? Don't you think that I would not waste my breath if this wasn't important? Versus, hey, I know we've talked about this. I know it's hard to listen sometimes. I have a hard time listening to God. I do. I have a hard time doing what I'm told to do sometimes. This is very difficult. Here's the, the repercussions. We've talked about the consequence of this, but let me help you clean up what you've done and the mess that you've made, because I'm your, your parent and I love you. And I want to encourage you, 
this is how we avoid doing this in the future. I would like for you to calm down, wait for me to come in here and get the juice. I can reach it better than you, and I'm stronger. So let me help you so we don't have a mess. You're a big girl. I have a lot of girls. You're a big girl. And you're getting strong. And you're almost there, but you're not there yet. So let me help you and teach you. And yes, that takes more time. We did a parenting class in our first series of Sunday School. If you'd like to listen to those, we have them recorded if you, were, if you missed those. There's a wild and dramatic difference between those two. And the way your children interact with that is life-altering. And I have made the mistakes with my oldest child that I regret. And there are things that I am trying to work through with them right now. And there are improvements that through God's grace and through his challenge of his word and studying things like this that I pray that will get more and more encouraging for my children. But what about members of the body? When was the last time you texted someone to encourage them? Because we can avoid discouraging language. It's really easy to be Christianese and not curse. I mean, truly, we, when, we can pick and choose who are, okay, I'm around the church, I better not curse, right? We're really good at not just blatantly being rude to people in church, generally speaking, right? Just, just out and out being just rude. What is very difficult in the church for us today because of the American ideology of radical individualism is being open and, and vulnerable to encourage someone. It's hard. But encourage someone. Build them up in grace. Hey, I see you. I know you're struggling. I'm proud of you. I know this is really hard and I'm here for you. How can I help? When you say, hey, I'm going to pray for you, pray right then. Pray right then. Pray later. Pray right then. Hey, how can I pray for you? Well, this and such is going on. Okay, great, let's pray. I don't care how many people are around. Put your arm around them and pray with members of the opposite sex taken into account, of course. But be encouraging. And there's some things that I want us to, to, to think practically about from both genders. Because I think both genders have a specific preclusion to what is, is harder to avoid, harder to do on both sides from a scriptural perspective, okay? So bear with me, because this is what the Bible says. Okay, here we go. Men, we are to be vulnerable and love other brothers in Christ. We are. Make a practice of saying I love you to other men. <clears throat> yes, I'm being serious. Stop making jokes that are wildly inappropriate. Every man in here knows what I'm talking about. You guys have all worked with other men, okay? Stop it. Does that build anyone up? Doesn't mean that we can't have camaraderie and some ribbing and joking with one another, but encourage one another. Man, that is hard for us to do. Anyone else besides me? Okay, good. There's other men in here who struggle with that. Okay? It is okay to tell another brother that you're proud of them. You don't have to be their father to tell them that. You don't. And how many men in here would love to hear those words once in a while? Be honest. Do you know that June is Men's Mental Health Awareness Month? Seriously. It really is. 85 men a day commit suicide. A day in the world. 80% of suicides are from men. That's staggering. That's staggering. Encourage one another. Point each other to Christ. Be there. Say I'm proud of you. Say I see you. Ladies, I love you and I love what you do. Men are, have a different capacity per scripture in the world. We are out there to face the world. We are to protect our families and to provide for them. There is a different weight. Not saying it's more or less, it's just different. Okay? And so that way, we need encouragement, especially from our wives. Wives, love your husbands. Encourage them. Tell them you're proud of them. Wives, 
avoid the inappropriate jokes, avoid those kinds of things. But scripture is very clear and calls out women on a couple different occasions for being busybodies and gossips. Men gossip. Men are busybodies. Guys, avoid it. But women have a proclivity from, per, scripture to be much more biting with their language. Caddy, behind the back. That's the kind of thing that is easier for a woman to fall into, per scripture. I can show you the verses. Avoid that kind of language. How many people have had the mean girls? I, like, there's entire movies, there's entire running jokes of mean girls in high school and carrying this on through life and all those kinds of things. There's a reason for that. Because women have a really good ability to be really nice to someone's face and absolutely terrible behind it. Again, I'm not, I'm not, please don't get up and leave. But there are sins that are specific to women as well that are, are, are easier to fall into for both genders, okay? Men find this, the stuff I've already talked about easier or harder. Women find it harder to avoid those types of conversations. I encourage you per scripture to avoid those things. Build up your children in encouragement. Build up your husbands in encouragement. I can tell you as a husband, the, the encouragement from your wife means more than anyone else on the face of this planet. It does. Women, encourage your husbands. Encourage them. Be there for them. A simple word from a spouse, from your wife, as a man, will go miles to lift him up. And God designed it that way on purpose. Okay. The next point. Rest over grieve. Rest over grieve. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now you may say, Josh, he doesn't say rest there. Well, there's a reason that Paul points out that you are sealed in the Holy Spirit. Because that seal cannot be broken. So we are to rest over grieve. So let's think about this in context of where we are. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit is doing those things that are counter to the Word of God. Doing those things that He is instructing and teaching you and guiding you from inside to avoid and to, to do or, or not do or whatever the case may be in that particular situation. And the and at the beginning of this sentence um, is, is, in Greek, sometimes you can imply a, a strong connection but not a solo connection. Um, in Greek sentences, and I think that's what Paul's doing here with the end, because that, that unwholesome and then building up with your words, I think a, a large portion of, of what Paul is talking about here is the Holy Spirit is grieved when the, the body of Christ does not correctly speak to one another. How many times do we see in the New Testament about the, the tongue guiding the ship and being stronger than, and the, the, he, in Proverbs, he who bridles the tongue can bridle anything. Right? He's, he's master of his, of his domain. So this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit is the idea that we can, in fact, hurt God, in a sense, by us not following what he has commanded to do as his children. Now, as Reformed believers, our first thing is to go, <gasps> there's emotions? Yes, God has emotions. Okay. Now, God is not passable. In other words, he's not led about by his passions. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't run away because he's, you know, run off and, and smite someone because he's reacting. Does that make sense? He, he, he is just and, and those kinds of things. But he does have emotions. We would not have emotions if God did not have them because we are made in his image. But it's very interesting to think that the, 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 the member of the Trinity that is called by Scripture the Comforter being grieved over our inability to live out the love of Christ in the body of Christ. It's poignant to think about. We discomfort the comforter by how we live. Scripture is very clear about that. So instead of avoiding the things that God tells us to do and not avoiding the things that he tells us to avoid, in other words, instead of not following 
the commands of Scripture. Let us endeavor to please the Holy Spirit in resting in his work in us. There is no greater offense to God than living as the old man that you no longer are. That is, that is a grief. That is grieving to the Holy Spirit because he has come in. He has regenerated you. He has made you the new man. He has applied what Christ has done to your life. And then you live as though none of that has happened. That would grieve, would it not? So let us act as though we are truly sealed for the day of redemption because we are. Let's rest in what the Holy Spirit has done, looking to Christ, knowing that he fulfilled for us and that we can, by his power, by the indwelling of the Comforter and the Holy Spirit himself, live out what we've been commanded to do. Let us look to that seal. Number six, I know I'm going a little long today, so bear with me. Number six, new man over old man. So Paul has now talked about the new man and the old man, passage that we covered last week, not living in the former conduct. And he says, here's examples, because he's given us contrasts. And now in the last two verses of this chapter, he is going to summarize the old man and summarize the new man. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. So let's think about these two contrasts. So Paul begins with a summary of what the old man will be displaying. We've already talked about several of these, but I want you to I want to bring your attention to this list. Because one of the first things we talked about today is forgiveness, right? We talked about angry, being angry and not sinning, and that letting go of that anger, forgiving, not having that, that angst, not having that, that um, desire for revenge being what keeps us from getting angry. Look at this. Bitterness is listed first, and each of these things is listed on top of that. Bitterness, anger, and wrath. Same thing. Shouting, slander, and then you get to the point where you're simply malicious. All of that stems from what he says in verse 32. Graciously forgive just as Christ forgave you. All the things that we've talked about, all the things that we've built on, I would argue today that all of this stems from not forgiving. Not letting things go. Remember earlier when I said, hey, the easiest thing to do is just let things go? And it's not easy. I understand. I get it. But what we should be doing is letting things go. Forgiving. Because when you don't forgive, you become bitter. And Scripture talks about bitterness being, that, being like a, a poison, something that grows within you, that you harbor within you. You can choose not to be bitter. Just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you pardon them from the consequences. Just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that everything is, the relationship is fully restored immediately. There's a large misconception on forgiveness today. We are forgiven for all of our sins, but that doesn't mean we're not paying the consequences when we do them. Christ took, Christ took our wrath, right? We're forgiven, but we still have consequences to pay for speeding. There it is, the driving. Okay. So there's still those consequences there. So we are able to choose to not to to uh, to not be bitter by forgiving because bitterness leads to anger when you are bitter and upset with someone does it not bleed over in other parts of life even with people that you're not bitter against if you're upset with your spouse don't you snap at your kids easier right if you're upset with a kid don't you snap at your spouse easier that bitterness grows roots and impacts parts of your life that you don't even realize is there yet so then you become angry and wrathful shouting he specifies shouting as a as a as a interaction or, or excuse me as a, a spectacle of the old man. And there is a difference between dad voicing and shouting or mom voicing and shouting. There's there's a vast difference there. Sometimes you have to get stern. I'm not saying that, but you know what I'm talking about. Shouting. You guys ever heard someone truly shout out of anger? Ooh. Anyone ever hear shouted truly out of anger? And then. If shouting doesn't do enough, you start slandering them. 
talking falsities, trying to bring down their reputation. You see how this list is building on itself? And the last thing is you become malicious. You go out of your way to intentionally hurt someone. This sounds like every church split I've ever heard of or been a part of. Someone took offense. There was no forgiveness. Bitterness grew out. There was anger, wrath. Sometimes they're shouting. Anybody heard jokes about the Baptist business meetings? Yep. Sometimes they're shouting. But ultimately it comes to, I'm going to get them. They are going to be maliciously maligned because of me. You see how that progresses? There's a reason Paul gives us this for this, uh, us as believers to make sure that we maintain our unity. Certain, it's been said, certain behaviors and responses are beneath what should be reflected in a walk with God. Hostility is to be distant in all the forms it might take. Okay, let's look at the, the flip side of this, the new man. Because Paul gives us a very good example, verse 32, instead, so instead of this old man, instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Tenderhearted, what do you think that means? Empathize with them. Empathize with them. Be tenderhearted. Understand what they're going through. Put yourself in their shoes. Be tenderhearted. Because I can assure you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is no person on the face of this planet, let alone this room, that has sinned against you the way you have sinned against Christ. Keep yourself in perspective. Be tenderhearted. Empathize where they're coming from. Be kind. There is never an excuse, truly never an excuse, according to Scripture, for a believer to be unkind. There's simply not. Because you can speak the truth in love. You can hold someone accountable in love. You can stand for truth in the public square in love and be kind in your wording. Because that is the mark of a true believer. That is what sets us apart from the old man being different from everyone else because that is not how the world is. They are unkind, not tenderhearted. They don't care where you're coming from. They don't care where your, uh, what your background is. They don't care what you're going through. And they are absolutely ungracious because anything that I'm going to give you has to be earned, buddy. That is, the, that is the, the, the natural outworking of the old man. And so the opposite of that is what Paul is telling us. Let us do all of these things because Christ forgave us. Your motivation for living out the new man is because, again, no one on the face of this planet has sinned against you the way you did against Christ, and yet he forgave you by sacrificing himself. Live out that new man. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says, it's Colossians 3, 12 and 13. So as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. There is never an excuse to not forgive, contrary to what the world may think or say or teach or preach. It is not a certain level of actions. It doesn't have to be a certain amount of time. They don't have to display repentance to you. You are to forgive. End of story. Because if Christ forgave you, there is nothing that you can't forgive. Nothing. Because the key idea, the thing that motivates all of this is one word, and it's love. God so loved you that he gave his son. Now you love others. And that is much harder than, than it is. It's much easier to say than it is to do it. But first, John talks about that throughout his epistle. Love. God is love. Those who are believers, those who are elect, love. So as I get ready to close, I want you to think through. We are fickle humans. We need things clearly laid out for us. So these last two verses are the old man that we are to avoid and put on the new man in detail. Commit those to your heart and mind. But if there's anything I can tell you to, to summarize what I'm saying is, let stuff go. All of these interactions are avoided by letting stuff go. 
Truly, it is. Forgive. That's it. Forgive. Let stuff go. I'm not saying there's not consequences. I'm not saying there has to be, or there doesn't have to be conversations about how to avoid these things. We still learn from our mistakes and we help brothers and sisters grow. But the, the thing that summarizes all of our interactions at a church between the old man and the new man is let stuff go because everything else builds from bitterness. So this, this that we've done has been a setup for chapter five because in chapter five, he goes into even greater detail of what the body of, of God, the body of Christ should look like by using the term imitator of God. Buckle up. Imitator of God. That is a hefty challenge. That's a hefty call that we're going to cover next week. But this week, I challenge you, men, encourage one another. Simple take, so takeaways. Think through the applications. Men, encourage one another. Women, encourage one another. Speak not with, with rotten language, but speak with encouraging, gracious language. Be kind. Think through these individual things that we've talked about, because that is how we as a body should interact with one another, especially. And it's how the world is impacted to see that we are different. We are not the old man that Christ has made a change. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you to, to know, and we know in our hearts that we are sealed by your spirit, and we thank you for that. We rest in what your spirit has done, and we know that the strength to do the things that we have been called to do by your word today is through Christ and his indwelling spirit within us. We are to look to you and see the example and follow it. We are look to your word. I pray that the spirit applies this to each one of us, challenges us where we need to be challenged and helps us to, to be the difference that you called us to be in this world. Help us to put off the old man and put on the new man, an example that we've seen. For it is only by your grace and strength that that is even possible. I pray that you'll change each one of our desires as we go through this week, that we would be that new man or woman in Christ. We glorify you and thank you in your holy name. Amen.